Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 20, The Intellectual Revolution. Like lyric poetry, philosophy arose with the awakening of the Greek world in the Archaic period. Philosophy literally comes from the Greek words philos, or love, and sophia, wisdom. Thus, philosophers literally are lovers of wisdom. But in antiquity, the line between philosophy and theoretical science was not clearly drawn, and most of these new intellectual thinkers were both. The earliest Greek philosophers, some of whom were the first to write in prose, are called the pre-Socratics, to distinguish them from the disciples of Socrates, who lived in Athens during the classical period. The pre-Socratics are also clearly differentiated from the Socratics in that the former concentrated their attention on the structure and development of the physical universe, while the latter was more interested in ethics and in the role human beings played in relationship to one another and to the larger society. In classical antiquity, the pre-Socratics were called physiologoi, from physis, or nature, and logos, which means order or reason. Thus, they are those who study the order of nature, or as we call them, natural philosophers. Aristotle called them physikoi, or physicists, because they sought natural explanations for phenomena, as opposed to the earlier theologoi, or theologians, whose philosophical basis was intervention by divine beings. Diogenes Laertes divides the physiologoi into two groups, Ionian and Italiote, introduced by Thales and Pythagoras respectively. Because they did not have telescopes, the Greeks knew only the stars and the five planets that they could see with the naked eye. But they were much more familiar with the night sky than most city dwellers nowadays. Since there were no streetlights, smog, or tall buildings, their nights were filled with stars. They named the planets and constellations after their gods and characters in myths, like Orion the Hunter and the girls he pursued and never caught, called the Pleiades. In the works and days, Hesiod's agricultural calendar is addressed to farmers who learned when it was time to perform their seasonal chores by the position of the constellations. When Greeks sailed, they plotted their location by the position of the celestial bodies. In the Archaic period, colonization, travel, and the development of trade and commerce spurred the growth of astronomical thinking. Contact with other civilizations in the Near East, especially Babylon, where astronomical records of phenomena, such as eclipses, had been kept for almost a thousand years, and they showed that there was some regularity and predictability in the movements of the stars and planets. Unlike the Babylonian record keepers, though, early Greek astronomers tried to find explanations for the celestial motions. They attempted to develop scientific models that not only would explain what had been observed, but would predict future observations. Then, as in now, the same scientists who were interested in understanding the universe also searched for its origins. Then, as in now, that search often took as its first axiom that at the beginning there was only one substance, or very few, out of which all matter evolved. The earliest Greek scientists we know of lived in Miletus in the 6th century BC. Their thoughts have been transmitted to us because they were quoted by later Greek philosophers and scientists, such as Aristotle. The Milesians were the first to abandon supernatural or religious explanations for natural phenomena and instead to seek purely physical causes. They believed that the phenomena of nature 
was neither random nor arbitrary. The universe, or the totality of things, they named the cosmos, because this word meant an orderly arrangement that is beautiful, hence our word cosmetic. The cosmos, perceived as lovely because it was ordered, encompassed not only the motions of the heavenly bodies, but also everything else. The weather, the growth of plants and animals, human health and psychology, and so forth. Since the universe was ordered, it was intelligible. Since it was intelligible, explanation of events could be discovered by thought and research. The thinkers who conceived this view believed it was necessary to give reasons for their conclusions and to persuade others by arguments. They believed, in other words, in logic, a word derived from the Greek logos, meaning, among other things, a reasoned explanation. The rule-based worldview developed by these thinkers contrasted sharply with the traditional mythological view of causation. Naturally, many people had difficulty accepting such a startling change in their understanding of the world, and the older tradition explaining events as the work of the gods lived on alongside the new ideas. Aristotle reports that Thales, who lived from 624 to 546 BC, was the first philosopher in the Greek tradition, and was the first of the three great Milesian monists, so called because they believed that the universe was created by a single substance. Accounts vary, but he was either a natural Milesian or was born to a noble Phoenician family in Miletus. On account of its cultural contact with Lydia and its location via the trade route to the Near East, Miletus would have been a hub for information, especially knowledge of mathematics and astronomy from Babylon, who knew that solar eclipses occurred in 19-year cycles, although they had no way of predicting the exact location of where it would be visible. Thales was probably working with similar information when he was able to accurately predict an eclipse on May 28, 585 BC, thereby demonstrating that the powers of the sun and the length of days were not determined by divine whim. It was probably sheer luck that the solar eclipse he predicted directly impacted Anatolia, causing the battle between the Lydians and Persians at the Halys River to cease fire on account of total darkness. Whether he was present at the battle is unknown. Nevertheless, when word of his prediction had spread, Thales' fame grew exponentially and many of his ideas rode his ensuing wave of popularity. Thales also established the solstices and is the first known individual to whom mathematics has been attributed. He was reported to have traveled to Egypt, where he obtained an extensive knowledge of geometry, not in terms of proofs, which were developed later by Pythagoras, but through surveying techniques and general rules. Thus, to Thales we owe a number of theorems in geometry, such that opposite angles are equal when two straight lines intersect, that the angles at the base of an isosceles triangle are equal, that the angle inscribed in a semicircle is a right angle, known as Thales' theorem, as well as many others. This knowledge supposedly enabled him to calculate the distance of a ship at sea based on observations taken on two points on land and the height of an Egyptian pyramid, based on the length of its shadow. Thales, though, didn't know about the concept of magnetism, and he thus believed, according to Aristotle, that lodestone, a magnetic rock which attracted iron to it naturally, must have had a soul. Aristotle explains this by saying that all philosophers attach the soul with motion. Thus a magnet must have a soul, or it wouldn't be able to initiate the motion to pull the iron to it. And if it had a soul, it must be divine because all things with souls are full of gods. Thales believed that matter, 
of which the universe is made, is subject to constant changes that are brought about by the gods. According to Aristotle, one of Thales' core beliefs was that the water was the arche, or principle or primal substance, from which all things began, for it could be transformed into both gas and solid forms. Thus, all things either originated in or is constituted by water. Possibly because of this belief, he also concluded that the earth was flat and floated on water like a piece of wood. He was likely offering a hypothesis to explain the puzzling phenomena of earthquakes, which as we have seen were a problem in the Aegean region. If the earth floats in water, waves thus would cause earthquakes. While both his philosophy and experiments were fairly rudimentary, they sparked new thoughts and allowed for later scientific and philosophical development. In a novel departure from previous thinkers, he attempted to devise physical experiments to test his hypotheses, making him the first man in history to employ what later is called the scientific method. Perhaps the most important concept that he popularized was that natural phenomena could be known empirically and were governed by natural laws that did not rely on reference to mythology or the gods. In another effort to prove the practical value of scientific thinking, he supposedly used astronomical observations to predict the meteorological conditions of good olive harvests, cornered the market on olive presses, and rented them out for large sums when the harvest came. Thus, Aristotle later recorded that Thales first showed the world that philosophers easily could become rich if they liked, but their ambitions are of another sort. Thales' political life was entangled with the involvement of the Ionians and Lydians in the defense of Anatolia against the growing power of the Persians. According to Herodotus, Thales was with Croesus's army as they set out to fight Cyrus and the Persians. His status must have been high with the Lydian king, because he entrusted him with finding a solution for his army to cross the unbridged river Halys. Thales got the army across by digging a diversion upstream so as to reduce the flow making it possible to ford the river, and the channels ran around both sides of the camp. After the Lydians had lost and fled back to Sardis, Diogenes Laertes tells us that Thales gained fame as a wise political counselor when he advised the Milesians not to engage in a simachia, or a fighting together, with the Lydians. When Cyrus sacked Sardis and attacked the Ionian Greeks, he spared Miletus because it had taken no action. Don't worry, all of this will be relayed in much greater detail in an upcoming episode. As with all of the seven sages, wise sayings have been attributed to Thales. Some of them are, What's done is known, what's to come is not. Seek the company of capable men. Necessity is most powerful, for it subjugates everything. It's better to be envied than pitied. Wise time discovers all. It is difficult to know yourself. And speak not about what you will do in the future, for if you fail, you will be ridiculed. Plutarch states that when Solon visited Thales, he asked him why he remained single, to which Thales answered that he didn't like the idea of having to worry about children. I'll let you decide whether this is anecdotal or more evidence of Thales' wisdom. In any event, the ancient Greeks held Thales in high esteem. In fact, an epigram was carved on his tomb in Miletus that said, This grave may be small, but its glory reaches the heavens. Almost all of the other pre-Socratics who followed after Thales attempted to provide explanations of natural things by way of there being a unity of everything because of an existence of a single ultimate substance. Instead of explanation given by mythology, 
One of the most prominent opponents of Thales' new hypothesis, that water was this universal substance, was his slightly younger contemporary, Anaximander, who lived from 611 to 546 BC. There's debate whether Anaximander was in fact a pupil or student of Thales. Since Greece in this period had no formal schools at any level, thinkers like Thales had to make their ideas known by teaching pupils privately and giving public lectures. People who studied with these thinkers or heard their presentations would then help to spread the knowledge of the new ideas. Regardless, if he was a student or just heard lectures of Thales, Anaximander was very much influenced by him. Anaximander came from a wealthy family, and like Thales, studied astronomy and mathematics. He too is reported to have traveled widely through the Black Sea, the Aegean Islands, mainland Greece, and to Egypt and Babylon. His writings, which as far as we know were the oldest Greek work written in prose, have unfortunately been lost. Fortunately, snippets of his thoughts have been preserved by Theophrastus, a pupil of Aristotle, although he also held that all things came from a single primal substance as well. Anaximander believed that instead of water, which has a finite amount, the arche is something both qualitatively indefinite and eternal, which he called aperon. For him, water could not account for the problem of opposites, because the arche had to be neutral, independent of the elements. He held that this limitless aperon contained all matter, including such opposites as wet and dry, and cold and hot. Although his concept of aperon and his search for universal order was a concept that was possibly influenced by the original chaos of the mythical Greek cosmogony, Anaximander attributed natural phenomena, such as thunder and lightning, to the intervention of elements, rather than to divine causes. The different substances, separated out of the aperon, generate and destroy each other. And over time, this process balances out to restore justice. This theme of opposition and unity would continue on in Greek philosophical thought. Anaximander, though, didn't fully disagree with Thales' view that all things come from water, when he postulated that the earliest creatures gestated in a liquid slime warmed by the sun's heat, and then broke out of it. However, he isn't referring to evolution, as the creatures came out fully intact. Anaximander built a solar clock in Sparta by creating a sundial that cast a shadow. He is also credited by Strabo with being the first man to make a map of the world, which he believed was shaped like a cylinder. He attempted to describe the mechanics of celestial bodies in relation to the Earth, and proposed that the sun was 20 to 30 times larger than the Earth, but comparable in shape. He also concluded that instead of resting on water, as Thales had believed, the earth was immobile, at the center of the infinite, held up by nothing, a possible early theory of gravity. As an astronomer, physicist, biologist, and philosopher, Anaximander was an innovator, and a large number of the philosophical problems of subsequent centuries, up to the modern age, were inherent in his philosophical system. His postulation that the indefinite was the source of all things led Greek philosophy to a new level of conceptual abstraction, even more so than Thales. He was consistently rational and scientific in approach, arguing more from abstract thought rather than empirical observation, clearly signaling the growing Greek trend in this direction. A younger contemporary of Anaximander was Anaximenes. 
who lived around 585 to 528 BC. He agreed with Anaximander that the Arche was infinite, but like Thales, he identified the Arche with a natural substance. But he thought that everything had evolved from and is made out of air, not water. Whereas Anaximander tried to explain the world in terms of opposites and conflict, he held that what we find in reality is not a collection of opposites, but a collection of things at different stages of a single continuum. He believes everything that exists came to be through the expansion or condensation of air. When air expands into steam, it becomes fire, and when it condenses into wind, it becomes solid substances like mist, water, mud, dirt, and stone. While the others also recognized such transitions in states of matter, Anaximenes was the first to associate the pairs of hot and dry and cold and wet with the density of a single material. But why did he choose air as the arche if everything is in a continuum? Well, Anaximenes may have believed that air is the element most like aperon, as it's the most neutral element. Anaximenes rejected aperon, though, because it is not perceivable, so that he could not be certain of its existence. But if there is such a thing, it is the perceivable air. Like Thales, Anaximenes believed that the earth was flat and floated, but he thought that it floated on air, not water. He held that the earth was formed first, and vapors rising above the earth became flames, and some of the flames became the celestial bodies, which have the same shape as the earth. The moon receives light from the sun, and the eclipses of the sun and moon are due to natural causes. Apart from the stars that are visible to the naked eye, there are also others that causes eclipses of the moon. When the sun sets, it does not pass under the earth, but is merely obscured by higher parts of the earth as it circles around and becomes more distant. Anaximenes likened the motion of the sun and the other celestial bodies around the earth to the way that a cap may be turned around the head. Anaximenes also said that the soul is made of air, which he calls pneuma, as humans stopped living once they stopped breathing. He then compares the human body to the cosmos, as both are sustained by air. Anaximenes uses observations and reasoning to provide causes for other natural phenomena on the Earth as well. Earthquakes, he asserted, were the result either of lack of moisture, which causes the Earth to break apart because of how parched it is, or due to superabundance of water, which also causes cracks in the Earth. In either case, the Earth becomes weakened by its cracks, so that hills collapse and cause earthquakes. Lightning is similarly caused by the violent separation of clouds by the wind, creating a bright, fire-like flash. Rainbows, on the other hand, are formed when densely compressed air is touched by the rays of the sun. These examples show how Anaximenes, like the other Milesian philosophers, looked for the broader picture in nature. They sought unifying causes for diversely occurring events, rather than treating each one on a case-by-case basis, or attributing them to the gods. Pherecydes formed a bridge between the mythological thought of Hesius and pre-Socratic philosophy. He lived sometime between 580 and 520 BC. Anecdotes about his life are unreliable, but he is said to have relocated to either Samos or Ephesus temporarily before returning back to his home island of Syros. He used mythic representations to teach his philosophy, and in doing so, he authored a cosmogony of his own, which followed similar lines to Hesiod. His work is lost, but it survived into the Hellenistic period, and some fragments have been quoted in other authors. 
Pherecydes was said to have been the first writer to communicate philosophical musings in prose. Aristotle regarded him partly as a mythological writer, and Plutarch, as well as many other writers, gave him the title of Theologus. Both Cicero and Augustine believe that he was the first to teach on the immortality of the soul, and is also considered to be the first to teach about the transmigration of the soul to the underworld, and its eventual reincarnation. Thus, some scholars have speculated that Pharisaides was at one point the teacher of Pythagoras. More on him shortly. While entirely plausible, there is no evidence to support this belief. At the very least, he may have influenced him. Pharisaides was occasionally counted among the seven sages by certain ancient sources. A sundial, supposedly made by Pharisaides, was said by Diogenes Laertes to be preserved on Syros. Tradition maintains that he lived in a cave in the northern part of the island. Pharisaides' cave on Syros remains a popular tourist destination to this day. Philosophy flourished also in Magna Graecia. The best known of the Western philosophers was Pythagoras, who lived from around 570 to 495 BC. None of Pythagoras's own writings remain, and so much mythology grew up surrounding him, much of it by later writers who accepted, uncritically, what they read by others. That all one can say with certainty is that there was a figure in ancient Greece named Pythagoras, and that this man founded a philosophical-slash-religious order, known as the Pythagoreans. Everything else is up for debate. Just so you know what we're dealing with. Some of the myths about Pythagoras are that Apollo was his father, that he gleamed with a supernatural brightness, that he had a golden thigh, and that he was seen in different places at the same time, among others. We do know that his family originally was from Phileas, a city in the northwestern Peloponnese. It was there that a young Pythagoras is said to have been the first to call himself a philosopher, or a lover of knowledge. According to tradition, one day, Leon, the tyrant of Phileas, asked Pythagoras who he was and what he did for a living, to which Pythagoras answered, I am a philosophos, thereby coining the word. At some point shortly thereafter, his family moved to Samos. Pythagoras was supposedly taught by both Thales and Anaximander in Miletus, and possibly Pharisaides, as we mentioned before. He studied geometry with the pharaoh Amasis in Egypt, where he remained for 22 years. He learned the language of the Egyptians, was initiated into their knowledge, and entered the heart of Egyptian philosophy by studying their books. He went to Babylon, where he stayed for 12 years and learned divination and prophecy from the Persian Magi, and astronomy from the Chaldeans. He may have even visited India. Then he traveled to Crete, and together with a seer named Epimendes, they descended into the Idean cave, where according to legend, Rhea had hidden the infant Zeus right after his birth. He also went to Delos and Delphi. After his travels, Pythagoras returned to Samos to find his polis under the tyranny of Polycrates. So he sailed away and settled in Croton in southern Italy, around 530 BC. Upon his arrival in Croton, he quickly gained many followers, apparently dazzling them with his eloquent speeches. They abandoned their luxurious and corrupt way of life and devoted themselves to the pure system which he came to introduce. Pythagoras established an organization for the purpose of pursuing the religious and ascetic practices which he taught. The club was in practice at once a philosophical school, 
a religious brotherhood, and a political association. The sources report that the Society of Pythagoreans, as they were called, consisted of 300 pupils and followers. Their origin was not from the masses of the people, but from the noble classes, and women were allowed to be among the adherents. What was done and taught among the members was kept a secret. The esoteric teachings may have concerned mathematics, music, medicine, or religious doctrines, and may have been connected with the worship of Apollo. In order to achieve the aims of the Pythagorean society, one had to be purged of all weaknesses of the senses, and to renounce worldly vices. For this reason, they applied certain ascetic regulations, which on the surface appear incomprehensible, but are understood better if we consider that the commandments of religions very often represent rules that exist merely to imbue a group spirit and encourage the members to adopt uniform behaviors. The Pythagoreans were vegetarians and also were not allowed to eat beans. It's not clear why beans were forbidden, but the Pythagoreans were also mystics who believed that souls moved on to other bodies, animal or human, after death. Thus, they were vegetarians because they didn't want to run the risk of eating a cow or a sheep, for instance, and thus eating a deceased relative or friend. His contemporary, Xenophanes, more on him shortly, mocked Pythagoras' beliefs on incarnation, mentioning a story where Pythagoras interceded on behalf of a dog that was being beaten, professing to recognize in its cries the voice of a departed friend. Furthermore, Pythagoras supposedly claimed that he had lived four previous lives that he could remember in detail, one of which resulted him dying while fighting in the Trojan War. As we will see, the philosophy of Pythagoras would have a tremendous influence on Plato, and he is mentioned often in his metaphysics. Due to the secretive nature of his school, the fact that Pythagoras left behind no writings of his own, and since legends cloud his life and work, one can give only a tentative account of Pythagoras' teachings, although with the understanding that many of the accomplishments credited to Pythagoras may actually have been those of his students. In any event, he taught that the entire universe was understandable through mathematics. His doctrines inspired systematic study of mathematics and the numerical aspects of musical harmony. Geometry, which literally means taking the measure of the earth, was a theoretical and practical science of special importance in the ancient world, where land was the most valuable commodity. The most famous discovery by Pythagoras is the so-called Pythagorean theorem, which, as I'm sure you all remember from grade school, is that on a right-angled triangle, the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides, or simply put, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. It's entirely possible that this theorem was previously known by the Babylonians or the Indians, and we just haven't the source to confirm this. Furthermore, the earliest mention of its connection to Pythagoras wouldn't come until Cicero, five centuries later. This famous theorem is only one of the discoveries he, or his school, supposedly made though. The science of numbers became an object of mystic revelation, in the same way that the first astronomers were astrologers and the first chemists were alchemists. In contrast to Thales, who was chiefly preoccupied with nature, the Pythagoreans were above all mathematicians who, in the relationships between numbers and in the harmony they express, discovered a kind of matter, which in their opinion, was the principle of the universe. In this way also, he greatly influenced Plato, 
as it is known that Plato's theory of forms is chiefly geometry, and that Plato admitted any Greek-speaking student in his academy as long as they knew geometry. Pythagoreanism, in the subsequent centuries, was more or less confused with another occult movement, that of Orphism, whose founder, an entirely mythical figure, was the singer Orpheus of Thrace. His lyre was said to have brought peace to the entire earth, the waves of the sea, and wild animals. There'll be more on this in a future episode. But there was confusion because the Pythagoreans too were musicians. They studied the science of sounds and measured their intervals and numbers, thus laying the foundations for the acoustic theory of harmony. At the same time, they believed in the religious and cleansing power of melody. Another belief attributed to Pythagoras was that of the harmony of the heavenly bodies. He believed that the planets and stars moved accordingly to mathematical equations, which corresponded to musical notes and thus produced a symphony. Pythagoras postulated that the Earth was a sphere in the center of a series of hollow spheres. The stars were fixed on the outer spherical shell and the planets on smaller shells within. Each day the stellar sphere rotated from east to west, while the planetary spheres rotated from west to east at various rates. Their movement created a sound, but since the sound is always with us, we are unable to hear it. The Pythagorean theory of the musical harmony of the heavenly spheres is an example of an attempt to find, or even to impose, an aesthetically pleasing mathematical explanation for the movement of celestial bodies. The Pythagoreans managed to acquire considerable influence with the Supreme Council of 1000, by which the city of Croton was ruled. By the end of the 6th century BC, Croton was one of the most flourishing cities in Magna Graecia. It had a population between 50,000 and 80,000, and its inhabitants were famous for the simplicity of their lives, which is most likely why Pythagoras' ascetic teachings gained such a foothold. They were also famous for their physical strength, and during the 6th century BC, Croton produced many generations of victors in the Olympics and the other Panhellenic Games, the most famous of which was Milo, who enjoyed a brilliant wrestling career. Milo was said to be an associate of Pythagoras. He was known for his almost Samson-like strength. One story tells of him saving the philosopher's life when a pillar collapsed in a banquet hall, and he supported the roof until Pythagoras could reach safety. Another story relates that Milo may have married the philosopher's daughter, Maia. We will cover the athletic prowess of Milo in the next episode. Sybaris was the rival of Croton. As we've seen before, they didn't live simple lives but instead preferred opulence and hedonism. But Diodorus Siculus writes that the oligarchic government of Sybaris was overthrown over the winter of 510-509 BC by a popular leader named Tellus, who Herodotus describes as a tyrant. He persuaded the Sybarites to exile the 500 richest citizens and to confiscate their wealth. The exiled citizens took refuge at the altars of Croton, Tellus demanded that the Crotoniates return the exiles under threat of war. The Crotoniates were inclined to surrender the exiles to avoid war, but Pythagoras convinced them to protect the suppliants. As a consequence, the Sybarites marched with 300,000 men upon Croton, whose army led by Milo numbered 100,000. The army sizes given by Diodorus and shared with Strabo must have been even more exaggerated than the population size. 
Regardless, even though they were greatly outnumbered, the Crotoniates won the battle and took no prisoners, killing most of the Sybarites. After their victory, they plundered and raised Sybaris. According to Strabo, either two months or nine days elapsed between the battle and the sack. Most likely, the Sybarites executed Tellus and his supporters during this time. Strabo claims that the Crotoniates diverted the course of the river Krathis to submerge Sybaris. The veracity of this account seems questionable. It seems unlikely for Tellus to have banished his opponents and then demanded that they return. In any event, sometime around 500 to 495 BC, an insurrection took place, by which the Pythagoreans were driven out and a more democratic constitution was established. We are unsure on the specifics about this democracy, but it occurred after Athens had already established theirs. There will be more on that in a future episode. In any event, their enemies, headed by Chilon and Ninon, the former of whom is said to have been irritated by his exclusion from the Brotherhood, roused the populace against the Pythagoreans. An attack was made upon them while assembled either in the house of Milo or in some other meeting place. The building was set on fire, and many of the assembled members perished, with only the younger and more active escaping, Milo being among them. Some sources say that Pythagoras did not die in the temple because he had fled the city before the outbreak, while others say he was in the temple and managed to escape. In any event, he ended up at Teros, and then Metapontum, where he ultimately died. Cicero reports that his tomb was visible at Metapontum during his day. In any event, similar commotions ensued in other cities of Magna Graecia, in which the Pythagorean clubs had been formed. As an active and organized brotherhood, the Pythagorean order was everywhere suppressed and did not again revive. Still, the Pythagoreans continued to exist as a sect, the members of which kept up among themselves their religious observances and scientific pursuits, and some acquired great political influence. We will cover some of Pythagoras' famous pupils of the 5th century BC in a future episode. Like Pythagoras, Xenophanes of Colophon, who lived sometime between 570 and 470 BC, moved from the eastern Mediterranean to Magna Graecia, where he traveled about as an exile. He wrote that he left when he was 25, but didn't give a reason, or at least his reason didn't survive. It may have been due to the expedition of the Persians against the Ionian cities. In any event, he left for the Ionian colonies in Sicily, at Zankel and Catania. He may have also lived for some time in Elia after it was founded by the Phocians, since according to Diogenes Laertes, he wrote about its foundation towards the end of his life. However, this work does not survive. He was not only a philosopher in the ancient Greek sense, but also a poet, writing in hexameters in both the elegiac and iambic style. Only fragments of his poems have survived, as quotations by later Greek authors. He is considered one of the most important of the so-called pre-Socratic philosophers not only for his development and synthesis of the earlier work of the Milesian monists before him, but chiefly for his criticism of the conventional belief in the pantheon of anthropomorphic gods as told by Homer and Hesiod. Like the Milesian monists, Xenophanes also tried to explain the cosmos through some sort of universal belief. He wrote about two extremes predominating the world, wet and dry, or water and earth. These two extreme states would alternate between one another, and with the alteration, 
human life would become extinct, then regenerate, or vice versa depending on the dominant form. The idea of alternating states and human life perishing and coming back suggests he believed in the principle of causation, another distinguishing step that Xenophanes takes from ancient philosophical traditions to ones based more on scientific observation. The argument can be considered a rebuke to Anaximenes' error theory. Xenophanes' ideas about the development of the cosmos were based on personal observation. For example, he argued that in the past, everything was covered with mud, produced by a mixture of seawater and earth, because he observed the appearance of seashells inland, the impressions of fish and seaweed in the quarries at Syracuse, and in Paros, an impression of a bay leaf in the center of a rock. The use of evidence is an important step in advancing from simply stating an idea to backing it up by evidence and observation. In addition, we have one fragment of Xenophanes' writings dealing with the ostentatious display of luxury by the nobles and another which denounces the exaggerated importance attached to athletic victories. In regards to the former, he criticized the upper class of his native colophon, who went to the assembly in their all-purple cloaks who, as he put it, glorifying in their well-dressed long hair, drenched with the perfume of elaborate scents. In a similar vein, Xenophanes devalues the aristocratic pursuit of honor and prestige through athletic competition, as only the wealthy could afford to compete, asserting that when athletes win at the Olympic Games, it is small joy for the polis, for these things do not fatten the treasury of the polis. Arguments such as these made Xenophanes infamous for his attacks on conventional military and athletic virtues of the time, and well known for his siding with the intellectual instead. Although the Milesians used natural explanations as opposed to divine will to explain the cosmos, Xenophanes was the first to explicitly attack the polytheistic religious views of Homer and Hesiod. He criticized their traditional notions about the gods that made them seem like nothing more than immortal human beings. One fragment states, Homer and Hesiod have attributed to the gods all sorts of things that are matters of reproach and censor among men, theft, adultery, and mutual deception. He also rejected the common view that the gods resemble human beings in their appearance, arguing that we project our human features onto the divine by saying, Humans believe that the gods are born like themselves, and that the gods wear clothes and have bodies like humans and speak in the same way. But if cows and horses or lions had hands or could draw with their hands and manufacture the things humans can make, then horses would draw the forms of gods, like horses, cows like cows, and they would make the gods' bodies resemble those which each kind of animal had itself. The Ethiopians consider the gods flat-nosed and black, the Thracians blue-eyed and red-haired. There is one god, among gods and men the greatest not at all like mortals in body or mind. Essentially, Xenophanes argued that God, or the gods, didn't create humankind in his image, but we created our gods in our own image. While Xenophanes is rejecting Homeric and Hesiodic theology, he is not questioning the presence of a divine entity. Rather, his philosophy is a critique on his contemporary's conception of the divine. Instead, he claimed that there was only one God, an eternal being who shared no attributes with human beings. To him, God was better than humans in every possible way. Xenophanes writes that this God sees all over, thinks all over, hears all over, 
he remains always in the same place, without moving, nor is it fitting that he should come and go, first to one place, then to another. But without toil, he sets all things in motion by the thought of his mind. Xenophanes' God is beyond human morality, does not resemble human form, and does not intervene in human affairs. These claims were a radical departure from the anthropomorphic gods of Mount Olympus, who were thought to interact daily and interfere with the lives of mortals. Although it appears that he is advocating for monotheism, Xenophanes does make mention of his god being among other gods. While monotheism may seem a familiar theological understanding in the modern day, it was by no means a common concept in Xenophanes' time. He seems to have framed his one god alongside the accepted pantheon of the many deities of Greece in order to make the concept appear more palatable to his audience. Though he consistently speaks of many gods, it is clear that he does not believe they exist anywhere, but in the minds of people. As such claims were a serious offense at the time, Xenophanes could have also included his references to the gods, simply as a way of avoiding trouble. Some modern scholars call these changes in Greek thinking the birth of rationalism, but it would be unfair to label myths and religious ways of thought as irrational. Ancient people realized that their lives were constantly subject to forces beyond their control and understanding, and it was not unreasonable to attribute supernatural origins to the powers of nature or the ravages of disease. The new scientific ways of thought insisted, however, that observable evidence had to be sought and theories of explanations had to be logical. Just being old or popular no longer automatically bestowed veracity on a story supporting to explain natural phenomena. In this way, the Ionian thinkers parted company with the traditional ways of thinking of the ancient Near East. Developing the view that people must give reasons to explain what they believe to be true, rather than just make assertions that they expect others to believe without evidence, was the most important achievement of the early Ionian thinkers. The insistence on rationality, coupled with the belief that the world could be understood as something other than the plaything of the gods, gave human beings hope that they could improve their lives through their own efforts. As Xenophanes put it, the gods have not revealed all things from the beginning to mortals, but by seeking, human beings discover in time what is better. It is only by searching for the truth that one will find that truth. According to Xenophanes, one should not simply accept the beliefs of one's community as truth without questioning the validity of the concepts held. Human beings themselves are meant to discover what is better. Xenophanes did not even consider his own views to be objectively true, only more valid than the beliefs of those around him. Regarding his teaching, he writes, Let these things, then, be taken as like the truth, not as truth itself. In this way, Xenophanes is credited with being one of the first philosophers to distinguish between true belief and knowledge which he further developed into the prospect that you can know something, but not really know it. Only the one God knows the truth, and mortals can only approach, never fully grasp, what that truth is. Xenophanes might be saying that it is possible to act only on the basis of a working hypothesis. We may act as if we knew the truth, as long as we know that this is extremely unlikely. This type of critical rationalism would certainly have an influence on Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle later. Heraclitus of Ephesus was a fierce critic of Pythagoras and Xenophanes. We know little about the life and education of Heraclitus, 
but he lived around 535 to 475 BC, although he was of the noble class. He wrote that he instead chose to be taught by questioning himself. He was a melancholy and unsociable man, with arrogant contempt for others. Heraclitus compared most people's understanding to that of those asleep. To Heraclitus, only the philosopher, or the one who pursued truth, was fully awake and fully alive, and he seemed to consider himself the only philosopher of his time. Diogenes Laertes says that Heraclitus declined the kingship in Ephesus ensured to him by his lineage, in favor of his brother, and withdrew entirely from public affairs into the solitude of the sanctuary of Artemis. Strabo confirms that there indeed was a ruling family in Ephesus, descended from their Ionian founder, Androclus, which still kept the title and held special privileges. How much power he had is up for debate. During his lifetime, Ephesus was under the control of the Persian Empire and was ruled by a governor called a satrap. More on this in a future episode. In any event, Diogenes Laertes says that Heraclitus used to play knuckle bones with the youths in the temple of Artemis, and when asked to start making laws, he refused saying that the politeia, or the constitution, was ponera, which can mean either that it was fundamentally wrong or that he considered it toilsome. Eventually, his contempt for mankind increased, and he withdrew from the world and lived in the mountains, feeding on plants. Diogenes Laertes states that Heraclitus' work was divided into three discourses, one on the universe, another on politics, and a third on theology. He supposedly dedicated his book to Artemis in her great temple. Only fragments and other authors survive, chiefly Plato, Aristotle, and Diogenes Laertes. Heraclitus didn't write treatises, but in the style of pithy maxims that frequently bring to mind the prophecies of an oracle. Diogenes Laertes reported that Euripides gave Heraclitus' work to Socrates, and when the latter had read it, Euripides asked him what he thought of it, to which Socrates replied, What I understood is important, but what I think that what I could not understand was equally important. You have to be a very strong swimmer not to drown in his book. Heraclitus acquired various epithets since he wrote rather obscurely, such as Anictes, the Riddler, or Scotinos, the Obscure. His writings seem purposefully written to force the reader toward independent thought and realization instead of providing them with more of the same sleep-inducing philosophies that Heraclitus often railed against. As a philosopher, he formulated some important and original thoughts even if they are difficult to discern. Like the Milesian monists, he also tried to reduce the whole cosmos down to one fundamental principle. But for Heraclitus, the primordial substance was fire, not water, air, or some limitless, eternal apheron. Fire is transformed first into water, and then condenses into earth, as soil and rocks, from which it eventually returns to its initial state. In a constant cyclical movement, it appears that Heraclitus was very much opposed to Milesian philosophy. The Milesians took the real to be that which is fixed and permanent. The change that we observe is an alteration of the arche. But for Heraclitus, change is what is real, while permanence is not. The permanence of things is illusionary. This is why he said, Reality is both one and many. This led Heraclitus to develop his theory of the universe based on change which can be best summed up by his famous maxim, 
All is flux. Nothing stays still. Meaning that while fire is eternal, everything inside it is in a constant state of motion. The sentiment also lies behind his other famous phrase, you cannot step in the same river twice. Heraclitus would have a great influence on Plato, who believed that the material was less real due to its lack of permanence, and thus sought permanence in the non-material realm of the forms. Heraclitus' position on change was complemented by his commitment to a unity of opposites in the world, stating that the path up and down are one and the same. Through these doctrines, Heraclitus characterized all existing entities by pairs of contrary properties, whereby no entity may ever occupy a single state at a single time. So for example, a sample of water may both be hot and cold, or pure and polluted. The properties follow or succeed one another in a pattern of change. Every object is changing in some respect at any given time. If objects are new from moment to moment, so that one can never touch the same object twice, then each object must dissolve and be generated continuously. Thus an object is a harmony between a building up and a tearing down. Heraclitus calls the oppositional processes eris, or strife, and hypothesizes that the apparently stable state decay, or justice, is a harmony of it. Essentially, Heraclitus believed that everything is a product of those elements of nature that are in constant struggle and opposition. From the struggle of the elements, harmony is born. Therefore, justice can only be found in strife. Without strife, there would be no life. This is why he spoke of the polemos, or war, between the elements as being the father of all things, and their catalyst was fire. More heat meant more motion, and more cold meant more mobility. Heraclitus also believed that there is a law-governed process of change in the universe. His cryptic utterance, that all entities come to be in accordance with the Logos, has been the subject of numerous interpretations. Logos is a notoriously difficult word to translate, as it has had many different meanings. It is related to the verb to say. So common among the translations are word, statement, reason, or account. Heraclitus begins its importance in philosophical thought, and seems to be using it as the account which governs everything. It is a rational, natural, universal thought through which the universe came into being and by which it is maintained. Heraclitus seems to be saying that the unity of opposites is not found in their constituent matter, or what makes them up but rather in their logos. Note again the difference here between Heraclitus and the Milesians. According to Heraclitus, the logos constantly conveys thought to human beings, but the message is missed because of the consistent refusal of people to recognize the natural order in their own lives. Heraclitus's concept of the logos appears to have developed on the concepts of Xenophanes, concerning a single, eternal God, who is behind all things and who sets all things in motion. In fact, later Christian writers would identify the Logos with the Word of God. Ultimately, Heraclitus's contemptuous nature brought about his death. When he had come across a fit of dropsy, or a swelling of soft tissue due to an abnormal accumulation of fluid under the skin, he came down from the mountains into Ephesus for a cure. But he spoke to the doctors in a riddle, asking how they would make a drought out of rainy weather essentially asking them how they can get rid of the fluid. It was typical of Heraclitus to talk to others in this way, 
since he believed he held superior intellect. When they failed to understand what he was saying, instead of telling them, he decided that he would know best how to cure himself anyway. So he buried himself in a cow stall, expecting that the dropsy would be evaporated by the heat of the manure. And after a day penned up in the sun, he died covered in dung. I'll let you decide if that was a fitting end for such a haughty, arrogant man. Regardless, it's quite possible that Heraclitus is the most important of the pre-Socratic philosophers. His philosophy on many basic points constitutes an original view of the world, and he would exert great influence on later philosophers, notably Plato and the Stoics. The ideas of the Ionian thinkers probably spread slowly because no means of mass communication existed, and few men could afford to spend the time to become followers of these thinkers, and then return home to explain these new ways of thoughts to others. Magic remained an important preoccupation in the lives of the majority of the ordinary people, who retained their notions that demons and spirits, as well as gods and goddesses, frequently and directly affected their fortunes and health as well as the events of nature, despite their limited immediate effect on the ancient world at large. The Ionian thinkers initiated a tremendously important development in intellectual history, the separation of scientific thinking from myth and religion. On the next episode, we finish up our cultural tour of archaic Greece by looking at Greek athletics. So join us next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 21, Athletics and the Panhellenic Games. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes onto your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support, and I hope you are enjoying the podcast. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Apollo's Liar, from his album also called Apollo's Liar. If you like what you heard, and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientliar.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.